Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. I'm here with George Marshall, the founder of Climate Outreach and specialists in climate change communications. And George is also the author of Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate. George, welcome to Common Ground on Climate and thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you, Leanna. George, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you hope the world might look and feel like in 20 years' time? I think the key word is probably togetherness. I think that there would be a sense at all levels of shared purpose, of a shared a sense of commitment to working together and, and making things happen. And that would be both, of course, global, but I think also particularly at a local and community level. Humans have an enormous capacity to work together constructively when we have a sense that by doing that we're strengthening our society and we're building our sense of culture. And I really think that's essential for climate change. Of course, actually, in terms of how it would look and feel, would be would be one massive building site, actually. That every road, if I look down my, my road here in an old part of Britain, every building would have up scaffolding, there would be people moving about, they would be doing things, but there would be this sense of purpose. People would be doing so not because they were forced to do it or because they were scared, but because they were feeling positive about working together in that direction. And similarly, when extreme weather events came and hit, that people would be ready for them. They'd say, yes, we can handle this. This is going to be difficult, but but we're proud of who we are and we care for each other and we support each other. So togetherness. Togetherness, absolutely. And of course, the converse of that, the kind of hell of my evil magic wand, would be actually one where everybody has divided into little little competing self-interested tribes, where they were just looking out for themselves and their own interests, and actually there was no shared activity at all, but just personal protection. You talk about this idea of busy communities, scaffolding on buildings. Talk a little bit more about that. What's happening with that building? Building's a very interesting one, actually, because it's one of those areas where very little has been done. When I live in Britain, we have the oldest housing stock in Europe, which means probably realistically in the world, and nothing happens, and there's just talk from, from the government. The reason I like the building side is that, of course, first of all, it's essential for dealing with climate change. We have to improve energy efficiency, but also it's so visible, it's so practical. It's not about taking things away, it's about doing something. It's one of those activities which brings people together. It's also, of course, one of those activities where people can see that there's real jobs. And a big problem we have with climate change is a lot of what we say is about these theoretical jobs. And we know from focus groups that I sit in them that people just go, I'll believe that when I see it. You know, I, I don't believe it. It just sounds like empty politicians' promises. So a sense of people getting jobs in their own communities and building things feels to me very positive. It's also what's nice also about buildings and about renovation in particular is that it's about keeping on to holding on to the things which we know that we love that are important to us and making them ready for the climate future. 
it's not about knocking things down or putting up new windmills it's about protecting and preserving what we have and i think again that has to be key to communications because people get very scared by radical change and that's especially true with people on the more conservative side of politics who are often the people who are most resistant to climate policies so they need to feel that this actually isn't about disturbing or overthrowing things it's about restoring and rebuilding and renewing the things that are already important and of course that also means community that's really interesting I, I think you're right that sense of in any with any threat people all people really do like the feeling of pulling together and doing something tangible about it together that's always a very energizing experience if you've ever had an opportunity to pull together either in response to a disaster or in preparation for something coming. You know, people are very good at that and they come together very quickly, as you said. Really interesting. I'd like to talk a little bit about your book, Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate. What drove you to write the book? After years of working on climate change, originally as a campaigner and, and then increasingly as a communicator, I realized that it didn't have the traction with people that it merited. This is a huge issue. It's a huge threat. And many would argue, I certainly would, that it's an existential threat. It could potentially destroy us, actually. And yet people would pay far more attention to things that were passing, peripheral, far less important. And I was asking the question, of why that was, why it was so slow to galvanize attention. In particular, I was very interested in this in-between state of knowing but not somehow accepting that a lot of people seem to be in. So for example, if you went and did public polling and you said, tell us what are the things which are really important to you, tell us what you think of the big issues in the future, and, and this still applies in many, in a lot of research now, people don't mention climate change. They mention a whole wide range of things, but not climate change. But then if you went and asked them, what do you think of climate change? A lot of people would say, oh, that's very important. That's very serious. That's a big problem for the future. So in other words, somehow this was being compartmentalized in different places. It wasn't in the place of this is really important until you asked about it. And then they went, oh, yes. And the research for the book showed that there are certainly there are social, but there are also fundamental psychological reasons why it's treated that way. That actually our brains are wired to ignore climate change. Our brains to, are wired to ignore just about everything. Our brains have to be, in order to process the vast amount of incoming information, they have to be extremely adept at rapidly selecting the things they'll pay attention to and the things that they'll ignore. And unfortunately, climate change does not carry with it the tags that engage our immediate attention. It has a number of the things which gets it misfiled. It gets pushed into a part of our brains which is, well, rationally, when I weigh it up and I think hard about it, I can see that's important, but it doesn't move us. And a lot of the psychological research over the last certainly 20, 30 years has been showing that the difference between this kind of rational evaluative thinking and this rapid emotional responsive thinking is built into the structure of our brains. And actually in the book I got to interview uh, Professor Daniel Kahneman amongst a, a 
wide range of the experts I spoke to. And he has a wonderful book on, on this called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And Kahneman is the, the father of cognitive bias. He's the won a Nobel Prize for his work. And he said to me that climate change is in many ways one of the worst kinds of problems for us because it is it's intangible, it's uncertain in the sense that it's hard to see the causality. It's in the future and it involves cost. He says these are all things which his research show that we're very bad at responding to. So given that those are the things that mean we don't engage with it, you talked about tags for things that we do engage. What are some of those tags that mean that we're more attuned to other sorts of threats? There are some important ones for climate change and there are some dangerous ones for climate change. The, the important ones are going back to that point of togetherness and a sense of what is perceived as being important in the social realm. So a large amount of our behaviours and particularly our consumption behaviours are driven by the social norm, by the sense of what people around us are doing and what they value. At its most absurd, it's in the world of fashion where people from one generation to the next will completely change their appearance on the basis of a, the social cues about what's important or not. And I've got children, teenage children myself, they're extremely alert to this and it's something that they think and talk about all the time. So what's happening around you in your social group is really the, the key thing. And that's why togetherness is important and that's why communication is very important, like to have people thinking and talking and sharing around climate change that's a key tag. Another thing which motivates us is things which are presented in the form of stories. We're storytelling animals and the kind of the, the dry scientific presentation of information is remarkably ineffective in mobilizing people. What people do is they basically pick out the bits which speak to the story they want to tell and then just weave it in. But very few people except people who live in that scientific world look at the information and data and then construct their behavior on the basis of it. And I know that very well myself as a lifetime on-off smoker. <laughs> that <laughs> any amount of dry scientific information about the dangers of smoking really doesn't work for me. That, um, in fact, actually, in truth, the thing which has stopped me smoking is the fact that all of my friends have stopped smoking. But the danger lies in the story, but really the compelling stories for us, ones about threats from enemies. This is a kind of this is the core narrative of human storytelling since the beginning of time. Is the idea that the current system is threatened by an external force or an external enemy who wishes to cause harm, has that intention and desire to cause harm and to hurt us. And the reason that's dangerous for climate change, and also one of the reasons why we respond very poorly to climate change, is that it doesn't have enemies. I think in some ways it's actually the biggest challenge on climate change is that an issue where we cause it ourselves, where there is no intention, nobody wishes to cause climate change, is very hard for us to mobilize around. And in the book I suggest as a thought experiment, imagining that climate change was created by North Korea, so that they were pumping gases into the atmosphere that were gonna change world climate. It would have been a very differently constructed problem and response would have been utterly different. So the fact that we cause it ourselves, and also this thing of intention, this is the other deadly thing about climate change. We don't intend to cause it, but we actually cause it through living, and often through loving, 
for caring for our families, for putting food on the table. So many of the things woven into our lives as sources of joy and togetherness are causes of climate change. Going on holiday, traveling because we need to spend time with, with loved ones. These are very powerful triggers. And of course, the other danger on that is that then in the absence of an enemy, people with their own political motivations feed those enemies in. So the enemy is the radical watermelon greenies, green on the outside, but they're communists on the inside trying to expand the power of government and take away our rights and tell us what to do. Or on the other side, for the greenies, it's it's the evil hidden cabal of billionaires who are, are trying to destroy our future in their own self-interest. And especially it's demonizing the people in the fossil fuel industry who are destroying our lives. And of course, that's the opposite of togetherness. And, and of course, in Australia, that is exactly the kind of language which is toxic, because it means that then you get a whole group of people who identify with those industries. They then move into this other polarized enemy camp. It, it does strike me at times that we're watching one of those disaster movies where the meteorite is approaching and everybody's arguing. It's a very human response in some senses, isn't it? And even when there is an existential threat, often our response as humans is to go back into the logistical arguments about how we do it rather than do we do it, I think. One of the interesting comparisons, it seems to me, between the UK and the Australia is that in the UK you were talking about some of the efforts that aren't being very effective around insulation but you do have parties on both the conservative and the left sides who are both looking to take climate change action where in Australia it still feels more polarised politically. You know it's been shifting, it's, there, there have been a lot of shifts over time in Britain it might look like that now, but 10 years ago was a very different situation. In fact, organized climate denial was one of the key exports of Britain, both for British media, but also uh, a number of very active think tanks and pseudo experts who would be popping up around the world, include, of course, including, of course, doing tours of Australia, the Australian media around the US, and that it was politically polarized and that within the House of Commons, conservative members of parliament were twice as likely to not believe that climate change was a problem as people on the left. And that polarization still exists in society, but still your political allegiance is your primary, strongest indicator of how you'll think or feel about climate change. But I think that the shift which has happened in Britain and continues to change is that we, well, the big shift was that we got a climate change act the government has to report on climate change and progress and set targets. And that was bipartisan initiative, because at that time the Conservatives were concerned that they were losing support and being seen to be an uncaring party. They were losing support of younger people. And I think there's a lesson in that for Australia as well. I think there's a kind of a demographic lesson that in the end what will happen is that people on the right of politics will realise that, that it's essential that they embrace this issue for electoral reasons. They're just not there yet. And I have to say in Britain also what's happened is that there you, you then get into a, a virtuous spiral where then what happens is that then the media then start picking up on those political cues. They start covering stuff more positively and, and so on. And it's really a battle of the narratives. As I said, it's about stories. You've got the negative narratives about taking things away, destroying our way of life and cost. And you've got the positive ones about leadership and you know, world leadership and opportunity and togetherness. And 
in the end you get a tipping point or a balance. Of course, in Britain, we've closed down our coal mining industry some years ago, and the North Sea is rapidly draining. And so we do not have the conflict of interest, which is such a problem in Australia or Canada or, or the US. That's hard. That's very hard. The situation here would be utterly different because if we had a very active fossil fuel sector, because... Yeah then it's not just about jobs and economy it's about identity and i guess that's the thing i haven't said yet but the key to this is weaving climate action into people's positive identity and the danger is that opposing climate action becomes woven into their identity as, as an expression of who they are which as i've said is a much more powerful emotional trigger than a scientific report because fundamentally we're social animals i think is the undertone of what i'm hearing you say Absolutely. And we're proud of who we are and we build on that pride and we're very defensive of our social group. In your book, you talk about people who've experienced and survived disasters and some of the unexpected ways in which that can impact their response and ways of talking about climate change. Obviously, that's very relevant to people in Australia on the back of a horrendous bushfire season and some of the biggest floods we've ever seen as throwing a pandemic as well of course so we really do have people who are very traumatized very direct and immediate experiences of in some cases communities who've had both of those the bushfires and then the floods and have lost everything what were some of the observations that you had about how people respond to disaster and why that is it stands to reason that if you're traumatized that the way you respond to it is really to focus on the immediate issues now and of course people go through several stages of anger where they are looking to to blame people and that often falls on governments or sometimes insurance companies almost a number of things and then sometimes a kind of despair but then Often in my interviews, I did interviews in um, two areas in the U.S., one which had the most extreme wildfires in recorded history, that was in Texas, and then up and down the Jersey Seashore after, after Hurricane Sandy. I was there not long after Hurricane Sandy, I think just a few months. And there people were in recovery mode, and it goes back to that thing about togetherness. People were finding a real sense of pride in how they were putting together and in the generosity and kindness of strangers and people in the community, because people are people can be lovely. And they were particularly enjoying the fact that, that in divided communities where there were, for example, political splits, because America's so bitterly split, that they were getting on so well with their Republican or Democrat neighbors. And therefore, within this situation, the last thing anybody wants to do is talk about climate change. So in both areas, I got them to tell their story. And then I said, so tell me about the last conversation you had on climate change. And across dozens of interviews, nobody could remember any conversation about climate change. And in fact, some people said, why the hell would I be talking about that? You might be talking about that because that's one of the primary causes of what you just went through. But of course, who under those situations is going to want to talk about the possible recurrence? So the dominant narrative and I'm sure this is the case in Australia as well, is that this is something that is this once in a hundred years catastrophe that you have to pull through and recover through and move on from. 
and it's very hard under those conditions therefore to talk about what's going to come down the line and of course the anger can readily focus on the people who do so if in that situation you then start to say well, that's the climate change we've been talking about then that anger and despair can turn on you especially if it means for what you're doing is potentially undermining the value of their property or their land or their business by talking about that but we've done a lot of research in climate outreach i'm a, the the founder of an organization that specializes in climate communications and we always say that actually the time to talk about climate impacts is before the impact <laughs> not after and that's hard because you obviously don't know what's coming down the line but it means that what you need to do is to invest in preceding conversations with people by starting up local level community conversations about what the scientists say might be coming and how to prepare for that such that when those impacts do come people already they have a kind of like a neural pathway they have a way of categorizing that incoming experience in a way that says oh it's that thing that we were talking about and of course if they've already had the impact then you can the mistake which i think environmentalists can make is that they'll say those those massive fires or that flooding well that's the climate change we've been talking about and if you think that was bad you cannot believe how bad it's going to get it's going to be so much worse actually not surprisingly that's not a very constructive conversation you need one which says you remember the floods we had or the fires remember you remember how we came together as a community you remember how we supported each other and we cared for the vulnerable we showed how strong our community is and how we can pull together let's face it the scientists are telling us that there may very well be more of that coming down the line and so let's build on those positive qualities and let's come together and let's prepare to pre prepare and protect for, for what's coming down the line and as you can imagine it building on the validation of people and making them feel proud of who they are is the essential building block for, for togetherness that makes sense we all need that don't we all need to feel like we belong to something and that somebody sees and values our efforts and desire for safeguarding the future i think that's very shared it really doesn't matter absolutely on the political spectrum as you said people want to protect what we have and that's that's and, very shared I, yeah. wherever you sit isn't it and i think the political polarization that we see is often because of a disdain or disrespect which is now unfortunately massively multiplied by this kind of toxic environment of social media where people anonymously hurl abuse at each other and which by the way everybody always says they hate even if they participate in it and we need to start from a position of like speaking across the divides and i think the key word is often one of contribute everybody's got something to contribute we can all we all have something we can give that is of value to this and this is a conversation which also needs to reach out to people in the fossil fuel industry too it was interesting by the way on that that we did a lot of work in uh, alberta which is as you can imagine probably like queensland or parts of australia maybe western australia is a place which is utterly built on extractive industries especially oil sands and therefore bitterly opposed to climate action and we tested different ways of thinking. We realized that if a conversation with people involved in the oil industry started from a position of respect and recognition, the reception of climate change information was utterly transformed. So if you start by saying, we're grateful, we recognize we're grateful for the hard work, for hard, dirty work that has helped to build the prosperity of our province. You have given so much to us. 
And now we have problems that we're facing. But we think you have a lot to contribute to that as well. That conversation, not surprisingly, immediately starts a very different way of thinking. It's such an interesting point because when you think in particular about mining industries and energy generators, the kinds of skills that they have, which are engineering skills, technological skills, problem-solving skills, and managing really complex operations, those are exactly the sorts of skills you need to have if you're thinking about a transition into different energy sources or more efficient ways of working, because they're also things that they think about all the time. So it's a really good point. What is it that people can contribute? And I think one of the things that has really struck me is the extent to which a lot of people stay out of these discussions because they don't feel that they have the expertise. Climate change also often ends up being very technical in the conversations and the explanations. And when people are uncomfortable with things, they tend to be less likely to contribute. So that point about contribution recognizing people's efforts but also I think about thinking a little bit more expansively about the kinds of skills and expertise we need to be ready for what's down the the line as you talk about be ready for more of these kinds of events. I think though it's very important we're not disingenuous with this and try and claim that we can somehow just shift people from one sector to another. I think it's important to be honest that this is an utter shock for economic and especially energy systems. But it's interesting again that in Alberta, but also we've tested this language all around the world, including India, across North Africa, that the language which seems to work best is to say, this is going to be hard. This is going to be really hard. And and people will be hurt by climate change, but they're going to be hurt by the transition. And therefore, what we need to do is to recognize that and to help and to support them through that process. But, and I think this is important, again, when we do that, we ground the narrative in a sense of collective pride. We say, look, this is hard, but we have faced things that are hard before, and we have come together stronger and better for the experience. So let's be upfront. And I think definitely on on fossil fuels, we cannot pretend that it's going to be an easy transition for people in a coal mining community into a non-coal mining community. The fact is there's going to be quite a lot of of struggle with that. You talked about the UK having made that transition, but I think the experience of the UK coal industry in that transition does loom large in the Australian collective experience and memories as rough, brutal, uncaring. And so it's interesting because I don't know that we have loads of good examples of a very carefully, caringly managed transition, which is what we should be aiming for. But there's no reason we shouldn't manage a transition in a way that takes care of as many people as possible. But I think that's, that's, that's hard for people. I think they are anxious about what that transition might feel like. I think the starting point is to recognise and respect that anxiety and to say that that's, that's real, not to ignore them. Yeah, and the truth is that the way that this has been dealt with in the past has been through a brutal sectarian government, which is what we had in, in Britain, or, or, or the market. Capitalism doesn't give a damn about what happens. If the market shifts from one place to another or one region to another, people are just dumped. Yeah. And 
But I think that part of where the conversation comes, especially with, especially with people who are working in those industries, is by pointing that out and by saying, look, actually, this is already happening. And it's hard for us to look at this, but let's face, this is the truth. If you seriously think that there is going to be a major coal industry in 50 years, you're in cuckoo land. That is not going to happen because every country in the world, including your major market in China, is talking about rapid decarbonization. So why don't you take the position now, whilst you still have the economic and political strength of negotiating a good landing, rather than just finding yourself just up against the wall? And you can see that repeated over and over again in the coal industry. And, well, in the US, in the US, for example, like the demand for coal has fallen and fallen and the workers have just been thrown on a scrap heap. So I think we need to be ready, but in a positive way, facing reality and not in denial of it. Yeah, so it's planning for it. I've done a lot of work with trades unions and that idea of bargaining for the best options for the workforce is what they live for. It's definitely not saving the planet. <laughs> Although that's not the same, they don't care about it. But their remit is just to get the best deal and best working conditions for their members. Well, fair enough. So this is an essential part of negotiating. What are you worried about at the moment? I think like everybody working on climate change, I'm worried about the fact we've lost too much time and we're moving too slowly. I'm also worried that politicians are very happy to throw around big sounding targets and numbers. As I said at the beginning, numbers don't really mean that much when they're detached from evidence of what happens or from, from stories. I'm worried that the vast majority of people have been so poorly prepared for understanding climate change, the speed and threat, they actually have no idea of what's coming down the line in terms of policies, never mind climate change, of what this is going to require of them. And therefore, they, we haven't invested in building for consent for those policies. And a large part of my work right now is working at the United Nations level to try and enforce their existing commitments. Every government committed in the Paris Agreements and in the Framework Convention to informing and educating their citizens. So enforcing those commitments to get them to start going out and on a mass scale telling people what climate change is and why it's important that they take action. Because without that mandate, I think we're going to see situations like you had over carbon pricing in Australia. And in fact, maybe even make it way worse. And of course, that's a catastrophe. Yeah, a lot to think about, isn't there? But it, it also feels like you have cause for optimism. I'm definitely optimistic about the shift which is happening at the moment in world politics. And I'm optimistic that the COVID experience that would have been great not to have because but it has created some of the things which are the necessary underpinnings for change it has created a stronger sense of togetherness we climate outreach did polling across britain on this and we found across all audiences including the most skeptical and the most conservative everybody felt that it brought people together and that that actually that as a society we help each other out I think that's powerful. And also what's interesting in the same research was that everybody, even the ones who you would think would be most resistant to change, say that they did not want things to go back to the way that they were before COVID. There is now an appetite for change. 
And there is also the biggest example since the last war of people coming together around a common cause where there is strong government intervention because we have to have that to make this move forward and that there is a central planning but we have that shared purpose i i think we can't underestimate that that actually to have strong action and fast action we've got to have that so i'm optimistic but my fear is that could slip the biggest nightmare would be if our response to coming out of COVID is is just great. Let's go shopping, right. and that there's nothing is held on. You know, like George W. Bush, that infamously said after 9/11, wasn't it? Like, how should we respond to 9/11? Let's go shopping. How we respond to that is by carrying that forward, that sense of togetherness. I think those people's experience of change, and even understanding their own capacity for change as well as the government's ability to respond quickly and as you said that togetherness there are three really interesting things to call out that will set us up for the kinds of work that's required if we are to build a society that is better prepared to cope with climate change and to try and turn the clock back a little bit on what's happening we've got a difficult balancing act though because on the one hand we have to build on that and validate that sense of purpose but on the other hand we've got to be very careful with a kind of crisis exhaustion that people coming out of covid a bit like i was saying with the example of people who've just had a a major climate disaster going and telling them that there's an even bigger disaster down the way is completely counterproductive and i think there's a danger of that with climate change and of course there's a danger of that with my friends and colleagues in the environmental movements as well who have very much internalized the threat of climate change. We'll now go out and say, wow, if you think COVID was bad, wait until you see this baby. Well, I think yeah. we have to, I think again, the, the lesson we keep coming back to is that one of a positive validation and sense of shared identity and pride, where we say, actually, that was hard, but we came through that. Now we can face some of these other challenges, knowing that when we're up against it, we can show what we can do. And you know what, in, in Australia and New Zealand, you have a real basis actually for national pride around COVID. You can very well, I'm sure on the ground it feels different, but you can very well say, you know what, we did really well with that. And I think the essential for Australia in particular is building that sense of shared collective purpose grounded in a kind of shared identity, that essentially Australian can-do spirit, which is so positive and affirming. And that can help to bridge the divides. Having lived in Australia for many years, one of the things which I really liked was that there is a very strong sense of shared identity. And I think everybody across all of Australia feels that sense of place, of of identity in a remarkable country. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating to hear about your research, your insights, and the perceptions of climate change right across the world and some of the challenges that other countries are working through at the moment. Thank you very much. It was lovely to be talking to you. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org.